Lord, we don't get many windows into why you do some of the things that you do. So much of your greatness is yet a mystery to us. Perhaps we'll get to understand more, but no doubt, Lord, all the ends of your will are unsearchable. They are infinite in their perfections. And Lord, though we hope to understand better, now we look to your word and we see the glimpses that we are allowed to have of why you do the things that you do in our lives, even the hard things, Lord. And so, Lord, we're given information from you through your word, a word that we can build our lives upon like a sure rock, a glimpse of information, Lord, a piece of instruction that allows us to understand that you do have a plan behind our suffering, that you do have reasoning behind why we face affliction. And so, Lord, we thank you that you give us information. And we thank you, Father, that through it all, we do get your Son, and that we can cling to him even when we don't know and don't understand. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. The symbiotic relationships found in God's created order are truly remarkable, especially with regard to the animal kingdom. Generally speaking, symbiotic relationships are interdependent or mutually beneficial relationships between two persons or groups or species. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, the relationship between the Egyptian plover bird and the crocodile. In the tropical regions of Africa, the crocodile lies there with its mouth open. The plover bird flies into its mouth and feeds on the bits of decaying meat that are stuck between the crocodile's teeth. The crocodile never eats the plover bird, but is actually happy to have its teeth cleaned. So the plover bird, it gets fed, and the crocodile gets dental hygiene. Another example is the relationship between the goby fish and the nearly blind snapping shrimp. Snapping shrimp construct and maintain burrows in the seabed, while the goby fish stand guard over their efforts. During construction, the, the shrimp it leaves the burrow and it deposits excavating sand outside of the burrow. But because they can't see so good, this is dangerous for them because predators can then pounce upon them. So the shrimp maintain constant contact with their gobies using their antenna. When the goby fish sights a potential threat coming, it wags its tail against the shrimp's antenna, warning the shrimp of the danger. In return, the goby fish are allowed to stay in the burrow and make it a home. So the shrimp gets an alarm system, and the fish gets a place to live. If you think about it, this is similar to what we human beings long to find. Because we desire true community in our lives where we help others and others help us. Where we get the joy of meeting another person's needs while also having others help us when we experience need. And my friends, this is so similar to the kind of community that is to be found in the local church. 
For the local church is an assembly, a congregation of God's called out people marked by selfless symbiotic relationships where individuals depend on one another and mutually benefit one another, all while looking to the Lord of the church for our ultimate strength and wisdom. Now, please understand, there is a very important distinction between the selfless, symbiotic relationships that are to be found here at Riverside and those that are often found elsewhere. The people of God's church must never adopt an attitude that says, I will scratch your back only if you will scratch my back. Because that is a purely self-motivated attitude, much like the crocodile and the plover bird are only motivated by the benefits they can each receive from the relationship. And if those benefits go away, then their motivation goes away, and likely the plover bird goes away. We should not pursue the kind of relationships that say, I will help you only as long as you help me. Instead, in the church, we must adopt the attitude that says, I'll help you because I have been so helped by God. That's the church. This is the posture of grace. A posture where we are ready to give to others selflessly because we have already received from God so abundantly. And when everyone in the church, everyone in the church, just like in a marriage, when both parties, when both people, when everyone in the church adopts this posture, then we have the most beautiful of all earthly communities because we are then marked by the selfless giving and helping and comforting of other people. And this is so attractive to a lost world. It baffles them when people love each other so selflessly and to bring such amazing glory to God. This is what we find here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul is teaching the Corinthian believers an important perspective on the connection between the earthly suffering and the heavenly comfort that we are given. He wants them to understand the comfort we receive is the comfort that we must give. The comfort we receive from God is the comfort we must give to God's church. Before we go any further, I want to give some context on this. First of all, I want you to note who Paul was actually writing to. In verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 1, it says, To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Realize, my friends, that though this letter certainly has ramifications and applications for Christians of all ages, even us today, Please understand, this was directly written to the local church at first century Corinth and perhaps to other local churches that emerged nearby throughout the rest of that region of Achaia. The godly comfort that Paul seeks to be passed on from one believer to another is the comfort provided through the membership of this local congregation. These people who had committed to each other and formed this local body of Christ because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were to take these words of Paul to heart together. In other words, this text was not written for standalone cowboy Christians. It was written to a local church that its members might know how to rightly approach suffering and godly comfort in their body. 
This is one important reason why I so believe covenant membership in a local church is so, so fundamentally important. We commit to each other that we might comfort each other. And I think it's very difficult to form relationships of trust with people who won't commit in the midst of a crooked world. So we bond together, we cling together, and we're going to exemplify that in a little while when we go and eat together and pray together and decide things together. So Paul is writing to Christians as they relate in their local church. Secondly, please understand the situation that Paul was facing here. They, there were gospel opponents in that day who were assaulting the church at Corinth in that day by seeking to undermine Paul and his preaching ministry. One of the things that they tried to claim, and I think we see this in 2 Corinthians 11 where this is really spelled out, one of the things they, they, they claimed was that Paul's weakness and Paul's suffering actually showed him to be a false apostle. Paul suffered, Paul was weak, therefore Paul's not a real apostle. That's part of their claim. They did not see the value of suffering by God's people, and they believed that since Paul had faced so much tribulation, he must therefore be false. This is akin to our modern health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that wrongly believes that if we just have enough faith, then all of our ailments will be healed. Earthly riches will be given to us, and modern success will be just around the corner. My friends, if you've heard such teaching today, please know that this is not the way of God found in his word, the Bible. For the true Christian, like Christ, will take up a cross. But Paul writes in chapter 1, at least in part, to counter what these accusers were saying. Notice the end, verses 8 through 10. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So, when Paul was in Asia, likely when he was in Ephesus, likely Acts chapter 19, if you want to see that when you go home later, he and the believers there faced a great persecution. In fact, we're only told parts of it. We only get a little bit of it. We know that a riot developed while they were in Ephesus by idol worshipers who did not like Paul and his ministry, who did not like the gospel, who wanted it gone, and we know, because of what he says here, evidently, some bad stuff went down. It was so bad that Paul writes in verses 8 and 9 that he and his companions were so utterly burdened beyond their strength that they despaired of life itself. Verse 9 says, indeed, they felt that they had received the sentence of death. It looked pretty bleak for Paul at this point in time. His affliction brought him to the end of all of his strength at that moment. But the ultimate reason, we're told, for Paul's suffering is, verse 9, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Have you ever considered that when life hurts? That he's doing that 
to make you realize that you can't depend on yourself, but only on him. God allowed Paul to suffer to remind him of his weakness, that he might remember just how dependent upon God he truly was. That his only hope was in the God who actually has the ability to raise people from the dead, and he did through Christ. And in this God, Paul placed his hope. He was made at that time to learn what Elizabeth Elliot learned whose husband was murdered on the mission field by the very people that he sought to reach. She wrote of her experience later on these words, Suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth. God is God. End quote. So Paul was facing false accusations regarding his suffering. And he wanted the Corinthian church to understand the reason for his suffering and how they were to use such suffering to help each other. And this leads us to our text, verses 3 through 7. The comfort we receive is the comfort we must give. The comfort we receive from God is the comfort we must give to God's church. Notice with me three points to Paul's explanation of the relationship between earthly suffering and heavenly comfort. Point number one, the God of all comfort is to be praised. He's to be praised. Verse three into verse four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. He says, blessed be the God and Father. Another way of saying that, in fact, when you see that word blessed, it can often just simply mean praise. Another way of saying that is praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Lord God, the Heavenly Father, to be praised by this church at Corinth. He begins his letter calling them to praise this God, and he calls us at Riverside to praise him now by extension he begins this letter to this local church by declaring that this God is worthy of all of their exaltation. And he declares that the Father is worthy of all of our blessing, all of our praise, for two reasons. Number one, who he is. Number two, what he has done. First of all, because of who he is, they were to praise him. Because of his very existence, they were to exalt in him and exult in him. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. That's one aspect of who he is. So he, he's the Father of Jesus. God the Father is the Father of Jesus, whom he sent to be our sin bearer, our redeemer, our Savior and Lord, God the Father of Jesus Christ, He sent Him for us. Now that is certainly a reason for blessing Him, a certainly a reason for praising Him. For consider what Paul later wrote to this church in 2 Corinthians 4, when he said, For God, for God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Father God who brought 
light into this world at creation is the very God who has shown in our hearts if we know him by giving us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a gift. He's also, Paul says, the father of mercies. This word for mercy relates to a display of concern for others. This is a mercy that cares about the people that God has made in his image. Seen most expressly in his provision of Jesus for our justification and our sanctification and our one day yet to come glorification, God is marked by this mercy. He's marked by his concern for his people. In fact, all mercy, all mercy is ultimately rooted in him because he is the father of mercies. He is the source of all merciful feeling and action and all mercy finds its perfect expression in him. One cannot even rightly define mercy without pointing up to God, for he alone perfectly manifests all that is passionate and kind. If ever and whenever you see someone perform a merciful action towards another person, you should immediately see the image of God in that person, for they are merely mimicking the merciful Father who made them. What's more, not only is he the merciful God, but he is the God of all comfort. Meaning that he is the God behind all the proper and right uplifting of human spirits. He is the God behind all heavenly consolation for the human soul. Heavenly comfort, perfect rest, and spiritual peace find their source in this God. And they cannot truly be found elsewhere. The Heavenly Father is marked by this attribute. He is the comforting God who supplies all the strengthening and all the encouraging needed by His people. And this leads to the second reason that the Father is worthy of our blessing, worthy of our praise. It's not just because of who God is, it's also because of what He does. Because verse 4 begins with, who comforts us in all our affliction. The quality that he has, the attribute that he has, the character that he has, the existence that he has, he puts on display in us. He's the comforting God. How does he show it? He shows it in me and he shows it in you. He does things. He gives us what we need and we feel all of our great needs. And he meets them with comfort. He gives it to us. He provides the spiritual consolation and the merciful comfort of soul that we desperately desire when the world around us shows its utter brokenness before us. He is the God who is there, and He is there for our comfort. But not necessarily for the comfort of our bodies or the comfort of our circumstances, or the comfort of our conditions in life. No, He is there for the comfort of our hearts, that we might face all the challenges of this life with His joy. Remember, this text is being declared by Paul, 
A man who faced such a tribulation that he actually believed that his life was about to come to an end. And yet this is the same same Paul who declares that, that God comforts us in all our affliction. The man who is brought to the end of himself is the man who writes that God comforts us in all our affliction. Indeed, my brothers and sisters in Christ, we will face affliction. And all of us today are to some extent. Our bodies will hurt, and they will age and die. Our relationships will be hard, involving sadness and frustration and loss. Our work will never seem to go as planned, and life won't pan out the way that we hoped that it would, and our plans will often go awry. We will even face persecution for our faith. Yes, my friends, we will be persecuted if we are true in faith. Jesus said so. John chapter 15, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul said the same thing in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if we are true, we will live lives of affliction that include persecution for our faith. But our God is the God who comforts us through it all. Through the truth of His Word, through the intimacy of prayer, and through the fellowship of His people, He brings about our rest and our spiritual peace and our uplifting of soul. He makes it possible. He actually makes it possible. Can you believe it? He's made it possible for us to rejoice even while we suffer. Because he reminds us that our joy is ultimately not rooted or located in this temporary life with all of its things and all of its trappings, but that it's found in the glory that is at his side. The hope that we expect to see. The Lord sent a word of encouragement to the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah said of God, I, the Lord says, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? Oh, we fear the temporary. We see man and all of the afflictions and all of the temptations and we become afraid. But who are we to be afraid of them when he is the God who comforts us? Indeed, my friends, God is worthy of our blessing. He is worthy of our praise because he comforts us when we face the hardness and the harshness of life in this flesh. The second point in Paul's explanation of the relationship between earthly suffering and heavenly comfort, is that God wants us to do something with his comfort. It isn't just that he gives it. God wants us to do something with his comfort. Again, look at verse 4. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that, so here's the purpose clause, here's why, so that, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
As I said, the comfort we receive is the comfort, my friends, that we must give. One of the key reasons God provides us comfort in our afflictions is so that we will be a comfort to others in all of their afflictions. I have used verses 3 and 4 so many times to help both myself and other people that I have counseled to gain a godly perspective about suffering in this life. Because even when we are in that awful moment of affliction, that prolonged period of suffering or that lifelong tribulation, my friends, God sees the end of it. And he has a purpose behind it. And he has a greater goal in mind, actually, through it. And part of that goal, a little bit, a little peek we get to see into the window of his reasoning, part of that goal is sweet community for his church. Part of the reason why he makes you suffer today is the sweet community of his church for tomorrow. A joy-filled, symbiotic relationship between the people in his church as they selflessly depend on one another and mutually benefit one another while pointing each other to the comforts that he alone can provide. That's the church. God sees all of this when we endure. And he wants us to adopt the same mind, this same understanding that Paul relates to these Christians in verse 4. There are so many things that we don't get to know about our suffering, about God. But this is one thing that we are clearly told. God wants each person in a local church to pay his comfort forward. He wants us to take what we have received from his merciful hand and to pass it on mercifully to his people in the church with us. In other words, that trial believer that you've experienced, that one in which God strengthened you and comforted you and caused you to grow through it, he wants you to take all that strength and all that comfort and all that growth and apply it forward to others at Riverside. That's one reason why he's done it. He wants you to use it to counsel another person. He wants you to use it to pray for another family. He wants you to use it to empathize with that friend. He wants you to use it to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. And all the more so to those who have committed themselves with you to Christ's body at his church here at Riverside. Dave Zulegger, a blogger, writes this. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. God grants us mercy so that we can be merciful to others. God stands wholeheartedly with us in our suffering so that we will stand wholeheartedly with others who are suffering. God never leaves us alone in our suffering so that we won't leave others alone in theirs. It's beautiful, he goes on to say, when comfort spreads in this way, and it should happen often in the body of Christ. It is sweet to see people redeem their suffering by taking their eyes off of themselves and turning them toward God to find strength and then toward others to offer the comfort that God provided them. End quote. This is the beautiful community that can be found in the local church, the body of Christ. Perhaps hold your hand here 
But turn over with me to 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, it's page 909 in your pew Bible if you're using one. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 4 through 7. See how Paul himself found comfort by other Christians. Notice verse 4. Paul says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul, Paul here was filled with comfort and joy even while he was facing tremendous affliction. Verse 5, he says so poignantly, fighting without and fear within. My friends, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like everything outside just seems like war and everything inside just is filled up with fear? Paul, Paul says that about himself. How did this happen? How did he find such comfort when he was experiencing that kind of affliction? Well, God comforted Paul and his companions, and he did so through people. First, he was comforted by the coming of Titus. He was comforted first by his coming. He got the privilege of seeing his beloved brother in Christ. He was also comforted by Titus's comfort. He was comforted by Titus's comfort. He was rejoicing. Titus was rejoicing, and Paul was then rejoicing. But secondly, and ultimately, Paul was comforted by the good news that Titus brought about this church at Corinth. They had faced false teachers, those who had opposed Paul and his ministry, but they still longed for him. They still mourned for him. They were zealous for him, which means they had not abandoned the gospel or their gospel messenger. No, instead they were embracing Paul and they were embracing the truth that he had shared with them. Paul was, was comforted by good news, the good news that the Corinthians remained faithful. In the midst of great affliction, Paul found solace in God's faithful working through the Corinthian church, a congregation that he greatly loved. Paul, Paul had brought them the comfort of the gospel, and they had now brought Paul the comfort of their faithfulness. Every parent who longs for the best for their child knows exactly why he feels this way. Because when you see it go well, when you see it go best for the one you love, it makes you rejoice. Well, Paul felt this. And it's similar to what he says in his letter to the Philippians. When he says in Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Paul wanted the Philippians to make him joyful. And the way they would do that is by being unified under Christ. Believer, do you realize how powerful a comforter you can be if you simply testify to the faithfulness of God in your life before other people? Do you realize that you have a power by God to be able to influence His church for great good by explaining that in your trials, in your tribulations, not the badness of those things, but the goodness of God in those things. And that even though perhaps you weren't as faithful as you know you should have been in those moments, you know that God was as faithful as he promised in those moments. And when you relate that to that brother or sister, that woman who's still born a child, to that dad who's lost his wife, to the kid whose dog just died, to the family that just realized that mom has cancer. When you have that kind of understanding of God's faithfulness, then you can relate to those people who are in any situation. Because all you have to say is, I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I know in the things I've gone through, my God has been faithful, my friend, and he will be faithful to you. And as one who's gone through a little bit of affliction, just as you have gone through a little or a lot of affliction, I can tell you, I always need to be reminded of the fidelity of my God. And it builds me up and it builds you up. Point number three in Paul's explanation of the relationship between earthly suffering and heavenly comfort, this comfort is connected to Jesus Christ. This comfort is connected to Jesus Christ. Verse 5 of chapter 1, flip back if you haven't. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now I have a question. We should always ask questions of texts when they are brought to our minds, and then search them out and study them out to come to an answer. What does Paul mean when he writes in verse 5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings? Think about that for a minute. That seems a little weird at first glance. How can that be? How can it be that I, that we, share in Christ's sufferings? I was not there when Jesus lived and died. And neither were any of you. Some of you feel like maybe you were. We did not witness the unbelief all around him. We did not face the mocking scorn that he experienced we did not go to a cross. We did not shed our blood. And we did not experience the awful abandonment of the Father. And we did not join him in death to pay for our sins. How can this be that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings? My dear friends, please know, please, please know, Christ by himself provided a perfect sacrifice for his people. It pays for all of our sins and nothing can ever be added to it or to make it better 
or to make it stronger or to make it more complete. Jesus died for every one of your sins. And if you have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ, I invite you today, put aside your sins, recognize what they've done between you and God, which is make a barrier, and recognize that Jesus Christ paid that price and offers you eternal, abiding, joyful relationship with him if you will believe, trust him alone. And Paul is not here in verse 5 stating anything to the contrary. He does not mean that we share in Christ's sufferings and that our sufferings add some saving value to his sacrifice. Rather, Paul means that we share in Christ's sufferings in that we suffer to personally present Christ to the needy world that is around us. We pick up where Jesus left off by painfully going forward with the message of his painful cross. And this public gospel presentation that we take to the sin-marred world is indeed accompanied by persecution and disappointment and delays and requirements of great patience. It is hard to testify to Christ. It hurts to do so. It is rarely easy, and it requires a lot of us, and it requires all of our lives. We suffer with Jesus Christ when we go forth with the comforting gospel of Jesus Christ. And as verse 5 says, we also share abundantly in Christ's comfort as we see him joyfully draw sinners to himself. We go out for his name and we feel pain. But we go out for his name and we also see joy as he draws people to himself. Notice verse 6, really carefully. Verse 6, he says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Here we get a window into what he means by our sharing in Christ's sufferings. Paul was afflicted in his ministry to bring the perfect message of comfort to a lost world. He was persecuted. He was beaten. Paul was stoned. He was mocked. He was kicked out of towns in order to bring comfort and salvation to others, even to these Corinthians. And notice the end of verse 6. It is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. These Corinthians, and us by extension, would enjoy the same provision that Paul experienced if they too, and by extension if we too, suffered in their quest for holiness and gospel advancement. In other words, the path to the comforting of God, the path to realizing and experiencing His comfort, includes, includes a path of affliction, a path of pain. You understand His comfort best when you've related best to the afflictions of His Son. Listen to a similar statement from Paul. Colossians 1 verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, he says. Christ's death, my friends, lacked nothing except the public presentation of his death to a lost world. And this duty 
this duty of suffering has been given by Christ to us. Another pastor writes, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. We must take the message of, the, of comfort to a lost world And my friends, we must do so on the path of suffering. Because what we have received, we must give. We must decide to set aside the comforts of a healthy nest egg. A full bank account. Preserved for us to have plenty at the end. We must determine to set that aside and instead use our dollars for gospel advancement. We must determine to fully invest in relationships, even hard relationships, relationships that may very well lead to our hurt and our sorrow. And we must be willing to go anywhere to anyone if God asks us to go. And we must be willing, parents and grandparents, we must be willing to celebrate the willingness of our children and grandchildren to suffer for Christ by going boldly into an unwelcoming world. Don't pray and strive that they'll get good degrees and great jobs and have comforting lives. Pray that they'll set aside all those things for the king. I'm not saying don't have them strive for excellence. I'm not saying don't encourage them to do their best. Of course we do those things. But our goal is not to see them sit in an easy chair at the end of their days. Our goal is to see them having lived a life that is spilled out for the greatness of Jesus Christ. So, two exhortations. First of all, pursue comfort upward. We face myriad afflictions in our lives, including physical, physical pain and emotional loss and frustrations with the disappointments of life and ongoing battles with our temptations to sin and, and even loneliness. And when life starts to hurt, our tendency can be to look horizontally for encouragement and help, even distraction. We'll binge on Netflix, hoping diversions will provide some relief. We'll make an unexpected purchase in hopes of dulling some of the pain. We'll turn to substances to make our bodies feel a little bit of relief and help our minds for a little bit of time to forget. We'll even develop overly dependent relationships on other people, even sinful relationships and also healthy relationships in other ways. We'll overly depend upon such people, thinking that they will free us from our trials, but that is a power that no mere human could ever employ for us. Or we will turn inward and constantly dwell on our own loathsome condition, retiring into ourselves, retreating from other people, steps steps which only amplify our sorrows. But a right response to our suffering is to first look up to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort the God of strength behind our suffering, whose, whose Son endured the cross 
and can relate to all of our suffering. He teaches us to approach affliction patiently while constantly pursuing joy in his godness. This instruction he provides to us through his word as we prayerfully savor the truth about who God is and what he has done. Then, he helps us see and experience the additional help that he has provided through the people of his church. That when we hear of God's faithfulness in their tribulation, we can begin to trust him through ours. So, my dear friends, pursue comfort upward. Secondly, pay comfort forward. Let let the humility and the healthy perspectives that you have gained from your trials, how let them affect how you see others and how you treat others when they're in their trials. If you've been through it and you handled it faithfully, maybe not as faithfully as you wanted, but you handled it faithfully, you have learned something then about the faithfulness of God. And it, my friends, is now time for you to graciously relate the goodness of God to those who are around you. Use the hard experiences of your life to relate God's faithfulness and His strength and His superior joy to those facing similar experiences around you, especially here at Riverside. There is nothing new under the sun. Others are experiencing trials very similar to what you have experienced, perhaps exactly as you've experienced. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, it is time to help them through it. The last thing I want to say with that last point is the prayer that I've had throughout this week. My prayer is that the older generation, the senior saints here at Riverside, you know who you are. My prayer is that the senior saints of Riverside, with all of their hard experiences in life, the ups and downs, who have navigated the roller coaster ride longer than the rest, my prayer is that you will stand up and serve as comforters for the rest of us. We need you. We need you not to be bitter. We need you not to complain. We need you not to talk about the negative. We need you to talk about all of the wonderful things that God has done for you. Because if you're here today, and you have Jesus today, then you have everything today. So be that man. Be that woman. For every other younger man, every other younger woman, and every child in this church. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, these things are weighty. We must remember first, before we think about helping others, that you are the God who has so helped us. We always want to look to the gospel, always want to remember your son Christ. We always want to recognize the comforts that he has provided through his shed blood. We always want to consider your sustaining faithfulness to us, Lord. And then, Lord, as we do that, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to pay it forward. That we would be a church that would stand so brightly, not because of our dynamic programs, not because of our beautiful building, not because of any other physical things or things that are of us, Lord, 
but that, Lord, we would stand brightly because we are a church who firmly and faithfully loves each other and shows the love of Christ in each other. Lord, I pray that you would do this. Give us a unity, Lord, that recognizes that though we won't agree on every little thing, but that, Lord, in Christ we have everything that we truly need, and in him, Lord, we can pay it forward to each other. Guide us, we pray. Help us as we close out this time of worship and guide us as we go and meet to decide as your church family. And I pray this in Christ's name.